0: I just want to read from Isaiah 53, which is where we're going to be today. So you can open up to that chapter, Isaiah 53. I'm going to actually start in 52, verse 13. Says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. right, that we are excited today about the truth that we are reminded of, that our Lord has risen from the dead after suffering the, the anguish um, that we have just read about in this chapter. Lord, he suffered not for his own sins, but for our sins. He took the wrath of God that was due to us upon himself, and he exhausted it upon his son on that cross. And then Jesus, after paying our sin debt in full, rose from the dead never to die again. But Lord, help us to remember that the tomb is empty, not just on this day, but on every day. May we taste that excitement every day that we wake up, knowing that there is one, there is a servant of yours who has stood in our place and purchased our pardon so that we can have life everlasting and live for you. May you use your word this morning to change our hearts, to give us faith where we lack faith, to increase our faith where we do have faith. Lord, may you have your way in us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we're in Isaiah 53, and we're looking at the last three verses today. And you may wonder why we are going to this passage on Resurrection Sunday. This passage would have seemed more fitting two days ago on Good Friday. Well, this passage is not only about the sacrifice that Jesus made in order to redeem his people. It is also very much about the resurrection that Jesus gained as a reward for the sacrifice that he made. You probably don't remember, but this day last year on Resurrection Day, we looked at Luke's Gospel... Chapter 24, verses 36 to 49, which we read for our call to worship. And that passage in Luke's gospel records an appearance that the resurrected Christ makes to his disciples. And when they see him, they are startled and they're frightened because they think they are seeing a ghost. So Jesus gives them his hands and his feet to inspect and to touch so that they can feel the warmth of his body and they can feel the structure of of his bones beneath his skin, so that they may know that he was not a ghost. But in response to that evidence that Jesus gave them, the text says in verse 41 of that chapter that they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. So then Jesus ate a meal in front of them to continue giving them signs that this was really him, alive from the dead. But That passage would seem to indicate that seeing wasn't believing for the disciples. It wasn't enough to see Jesus with their own eyes or even to feel him with their own hands. So later in verses 44 to 47, what does Jesus do? He opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And he shows them in the scriptures that his death and resurrection were foretold by the word of God. And I think that's instructive for you and me because at the end of the day, only the word of God is sufficient for us to ground our faith upon. That is truly the only evidence that is enough to convince us that Jesus is alive. We can't see Jesus with our eyes or touch him with our hands. We can't sit down and have a meal with him. But that should not discourage us or cause us to worry that maybe I'm believing a lie because we can read the scriptures and see that his resurrection was foretold by the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word of God. And I want you to look at one of those scriptures today, which is Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, and my prayer is that it will strengthen your faith that the tomb really is empty and that Jesus really is alive and that the salvation he purchased for you and me is a real salvation. The book of Isaiah contains four passages that are called servant songs. And these are passages that speak of an individual that Isaiah calls God's servant. And the fourth of these servant songs is that which I just read to you. Isaiah 52 verse 13 all the way through the end of chapter 53. In his commentary on Isaiah, Derek Kidner gives a helpful outline of this fourth servant song. He sees it as being very symmetrical and containing five stanzas, with each stanza containing three verses. The first stanza, chapter 52, verses 13 to 15, and the fifth stanza, which is chapter 53, verses 10 to 12, each speak of this servant's exaltation and prosperity. So this fourth servant song begins and ends on that high note of the servant's exaltation and prosperity. The second stanza, which is the first three verses of chapter 53, And the fourth stanza, which is verses 7 to 9, they both tell the story of this servant's rejection and suffering. And the central stanza, the third one, which is verses 4 to 6, is where Isaiah explains the reason for, the significance of this servant's suffering, which is that he suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, so that they might be healed. And This morning we are looking at that fifth stanza, that last stanza of this fourth servant song. And we're going to look at it in three chunks. The first chunk is verses 10 through the beginning of 11. And here we see the result of the servant's sacrifice. Look at verse 10, the beginning of the verse. It says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him. To crush the servant, putting him to grief. The Lord Yahweh was pleased. He was delighted. He desired to crush his servant, putting him to grief. That tells us that Jesus' crucifixion was something that God wanted to happen. And in fact, this fact is reasserted in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Peter Preaching his great sermon, he gets to the point to where he's um, speaking of the fact that the Israelites crucified Jesus, the Son of God. But notice what he says in verse 23. He says, This man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So, This was God's doing ultimately. It was his plan. This is what he wanted to have happen. Now we're a little shocked that God would be pleased to crush this servant. Why would God desire this? How could God delight in this? How can it be that the Eternal Father who has loved his eternal Son from all eternity, would be pleased to crush this very Son who took on flesh in order to serve his Father. Well, this delight was not some sadistic pleasure in the pain of his Son. That's not what is being said here. Rather, this delight comes from a combination of factors. Why was the Father delighted to crush his Son? Well, the crushing of his son would satisfy his wrath against the transgressions of his people. We see that earlier in this chapter, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. God delights in the upholding of his justice. Secondly, the crushing of his servant would result in the justification of his sinful people. We see that in this chapter. The chastening that was upon him was for our well-being. God delights in saving sinners. Third, the crushing of his servant would result in God's further delight as the resurrected servant lives to further the wishes of the Lord. We'll see this later in this very verse 10. There's resurrection implied in this verse the end of the verse, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The crushing of his son will result in that very son furthering the good plans of the father. God delights in his good plans. And last but not least, fourthly, the crushing of his servant will result in the exaltation of his servant. God delights in his son. We'll see that in this passage today. Um, But just to back that up, let's go to John's Gospel, chapter 13. I'm going to show you that this crushing of the Son results in actually the exaltation of the Son, which is something the Father delights in. He delights to see his Son exalted, even though it's through this very painful experience. John 13, verse 31, the context is where Judas has just left in order to put into motion the sequence of events which will result in him hanging on the cross. John thirteen thirty one. therefore, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself immediately. Or will glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So this Good Friday event is going to be the means through which God exalts his son and glorifies his son. Later in chapter 17 of John's Gospel, verse 24, we see another element of how Good Friday will result in the exaltation of Jesus. He says, Father, I desire that they also, those whom you have given me, speaking of believers, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And the means by which that's going to happen is his crushing of the Son. So we see here that The father being pleased to crush his son is not at all at odds with his unfathomable love for his son. It is fully in keeping with it. Every father who loves his son delights to see him prosper, even if the road to that prosperity was marked with suffering. So we see in 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. But this crushing, this being put to grief, was not an end in itself. Look at verse 10, the next part of the verse. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We see that this crushing of the servant was intended to be a guilt offering. If you're wondering what a guilt offering is, you can flip back to Leviticus chapter 5, where we discover what a guilt offering is. Leviticus 5, verses 17 to 19. God, through Moses, is giving instructions for this particular offering. He says, Now, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation, for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it will be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. A guilt offering was to be offered in order to atone for the sins of the sinner so that that sinner could be forgiven by God. This crushing of this servant will result in the forgiveness of God's people because he is being crushed as a guilt offering for his people. And that is very much true. But there's another result... So this verse isn't only talking about uh, the result of our forgiveness from this guilt offering, but this verse is emphasizing another result that will come as a result of this offering being given. This crushing of the servant will result in three things concerning him. There are three things that are going to be done for this servant if he gives himself as a guilt offering. First, he will see his offspring. He will see his offspring. Now, the offspring being spoken of here are not physical children born of a union between man and woman. That is not the kind of offspring being spoken of here. How do I know that? Well, this crushing of the servant is to result in his death. Verse 9 talks about his death, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Typically, you don't have to die in order to see your biological children. If I want to see my unborn daughter alive with these two eyes, I've got to make it at least until the end of August. If I die before then, I'm not going to see my offspring, am I? But for this servant, in order to see the offspring Being spoken of here, he has to die. He has to be crushed. He has to render himself as a guilt offering, which will result in his death. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus says this Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. By his death, Jesus purchased for himself a people redeemed by his own blood. That is how his death will result in an offspring for him. But there seems to be a problem here. If he's dead, how can he see the offspring that he has gained by his death? I'll leave that question hanging in your mind for a moment. Uh, Back in verse 10, we see there's a second result of this servant giving himself as a guilt offering. It says he will prolong his days. That doesn't seem to make much sense either. If he's dead, how will he prolong his days? You cannot live longer if you have died. So what's going on here? There's a third result. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper In his hand. Again, how can this servant continue to accomplish the good pleasure of Yahweh if he's dead? You see, these three results are only possible if this servant will be what? Raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. So you see how the resurrection of this servant is necessarily assumed and implied in this verse. Moving on to Verse 11, the beginning of this verse, it says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, the servant, will see it and be satisfied. We see the same thing here. The crushing of the servant, the putting to grief of the servant, the rendering of the servant as a guilt offering is described alternatively here as the anguish or toil of the servant's soul. The anguish or toil, of the servant's soul. The result of this anguish and toil is that he will see and be satisfied. Again, how how is that possible if he's dead? Well, implied again is his resurrection. Turn back with me to the second servant song in Isaiah forty nine, These servant songs are very much uh, speaking to the humanity of the servant. We know Jesus is God and man, uh, but in these servant songs, the humanity of this servant is largely being spoken of, and that's the case in this verse. Uh, Chapter 49 and verse 4. Now before I read this verse, you can imagine Jesus crying out these words in this verse to God in prayer in the garden of Gethsemane or hanging upon the cross as he has seen one of his disciples betray him, he's seen the other of his disciples abandon him, and he has seen the nation that he came to save crucifying him. Look at what he says in verse 4. But I have said I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. When Jesus died, it looked like he had lost everything that he had worked those three years to accomplish as he preached the gospel across all of Israel, as he healed the sick and cast out demons, all leading up to when he presented himself to Jerusalem as the king of Israel. But here in chapter 53... Verse 11, contrary to what Jesus in his human weariness was feeling, the result is not vanity and nothingness, but the result is complete satisfaction at what he has accomplished for his God and his people. Again, what does this imply? A resurrection. How can this servant see and be satisfied when he is dead? when he is abandoned by his countrymen, and when he's crushed by his God. It's only because his father is well-pleased with his sacrifice and raises him from the grave to reward him. It's only because this servant has his people whom he has purchased with his own blood, and he is alive again forevermore to see them and live forever with them. That is how he can see and be satisfied. Again, the resurrection is embedded into this passage. So that's the result of the servant's sacrifice. In the second half of verse 11, we see the righteousness of the servant's sacrifice. And this righteousness is why his sacrifice was sufficient to rescue his people. It says, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many... As he will bear their iniquities. Now, what does Isaiah mean when he says that the servant's knowledge will be the means by which he justifies the many? Well, knowledge here could refer to this servant's knowledge of the will of God that led him to the cross to accomplish his father's will. In knowing the Father's commandments, Jesus was able to obey it perfectly for his people so that he could be that spotless Lamb of God, so that he could have that perfect righteousness that would be imputed to his people. I think we see something of this in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 28 to 29. verse says, so Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. There's the knowledge that the son has that he's gained from the father. And he who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. If the servant, the son, didn't know the will of the father, he would not be able to fulfill it completely. And the father would never be able to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It is only because the servant knew the will of God and obeyed it to the full that he could be that spotless lamb of God who sacrificed himself. Notice back in Isaiah 53, verse 11, that he is called the righteous one, my servant. That knowledge of God and his righteousness go hand in hand. This evaluation from the father of his son that his servant is righteous implies God's utter satisfaction with his servant's conduct. And it's because of the knowledge of the servant that he was able to live in that way and be a sufficient sacrifice for us. This knowledge of his servant, this, this knowledge that the servant possesses, possesses could also refer to the knowledge of the way of salvation. Jesus preached that way during his ministry, and he continues to preach it through his disciples. And that way of salvation is that way to be justified apart from the works of the law. Remember John chapter 12, the end of that chapter, Jesus says, um, I know that his commandment is eternal life, therefore I speak just what the Father tells me to speak. So these things could be wrapped up in that little phrase, his knowledge. And it is by that that he justifies the many. So regardless of what is exactly meant by this servant's knowledge, the fact is that by that knowledge, this servant will justify the many. The many here are likely at least referring to the same people that have been mentioned earlier in this chapter. Those who shouldn't be justified. Those who are said to have transgressions and iniquities. Those who have willfully and selfishly gone astray and gone their own way. You see that all through this chapter. Uh, Verse 4, these people looking at this servant say, our griefs, our sorrows, he carried. Verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening due us for our well-being fell on him. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. How can these people be justified? How can they be declared righteous before God when they are so obviously unrighteous? And the answer is the end of verse 11, as he will bear their iniquities. That harkens back to the guilt-offering language of verse 10. As an atoning sacrifice, this righteous servant, Jesus, bore the perversity, the rebellion, and the sin of his people. He was the scapegoat who took their sins upon himself and suffered the consequences. And because Jesus took their sin upon himself, he was able to place his righteousness upon them and justify them declaring them to be righteous doesn't that sound familiar paul 2 corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 god made jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of god in him you see that great exchange being spoken of 700 years before this servant ever came So that's the righteousness of the servant's sacrifice. Lastly, verse 12, we see the reward of the servant's sacrifice. Because of this sacrifice that his servant has made, God says that he will reward him. Verse 12, Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Because the servant justifies and bears the iniquity of the many, God says here that he will reward him with the spoils of victory. And the reason why the Lord, Yahweh, will so reward this righteous servant is because, verse 12, this servant has poured out his soul unto death. He's willingly laid his life down as a guilt offering. He's willingly allowed himself to be counted as a sinner in his death. He was numbered with the transgressors. And this idea that God would reward this servant would have been shocking to those who were handing Jesus over to be crucified. Because what did they think? We saw it back in verse 4. The second half, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. They thought he was dying for his own sins. So they would have had no thought that God would reward this servant for his suffering. But the rest of this chapter tells us that this servant was not a sinner. He wasn't suffering for his own sins. Rather, he was suffering for, he was bearing the sins of others. And he interceded before God on behalf of, of transgressors himself not being a transgressor so this servant is not unworthy of such a reward as his countrymen supposed but worthy again only in resurrection could this servant enjoy the spoils of victory this is speaking of his resurrection it is only in resurrection that he could enjoy the reward that God gave to him. This verse at the beginning of verse 12 talks about the Father giving plunder to him. We see this in a number of scriptures. If you turn back to uh, Psalms chapter 2, the second psalm. Psalm 2, verse 8, this is the Father speaking to the Son. He says, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. We also see it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Philippians 2 So we see this father giving plunder to his son, his servant, the victor. But we also see this servant giving out plunder to others. He says, he, the servant, will divide the booty with the strong. So not only is the father giving booty to his servant, but the servant himself is distributing booty with others. And we see this in a number of places. Uh, For example, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. There we see the resurrected and ascended Christ giving out gifts to men. And then lastly, let's just look at a couple places in Revelation. Uh, Revelation 2. 26 to 29. He says, He who overcomes, referring to believers who persevere in the faith, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. Then in chapter 3, verse 21... He who overcomes, I will grant to him. This is the servant talking, Jesus talking. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And then chapter 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. That's talking about, about believers who have been resurrected to eternal life. Over these, the second death, that's being thrown into the lake of fire. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Isn't that amazing that this servant in his victory allows people to share and the spoils of his victory. So, back in Isaiah 53, we see him who was oppressed and judged in verses 1 through 9, now standing as a conqueror, giving out gifts to people. So this, I hope you see, this chapter teaches the resurrection of Jesus. And there's no doubt that this that these last three verses of Isaiah 53 were on Jesus' mind as he approached the cross. Um, Look at Luke chapter 22. As he's uh, preparing his disciples for his absence, this is what he says in Luke 22, starting in verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes a portion of Isaiah 53, verse 12. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. So Jesus is thinking about this last part of Isaiah 53 right as he's getting ready to go to the cross. And you have to think that verses 10 through 12 of Isaiah 53 had to be an encouragement to Jesus as he faced his suffering, as he was going to walk through that troubling realization that there's nobody with me. It appears as if I have labored in vain. But that, that Isaiah 49.4, he says, I've, I've toiled in vain, yet I know that my reward is with my God. And you have to think that these last three verses of Isaiah 53 were encouraging Jesus as he was going to enter into his severest suffering. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And what we have seen in these verses are included in that joy that was set before him. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it is very likely that this passage was one of those passages he took his disciples to, to show them that the scriptures had foretold his resurrection. After he appeared to them and gave them his hands to touch and ate a meal, and they still were just having difficulty processing, he took them to scriptures like these and said, look, I am alive. The word of God foretold this. You can believe what you are seeing. And that same message applies to you here. The inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word of God has declared to you this morning from Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, that Jesus Christ offered up his life as a guilt offering in death to atone for the sins of his people, and that he rose from the dead. His sacrifice is the only sacrifice that can save you. His sacrifice is the only sacrifice that the God of heaven and earth will accept in order to forgive you. Without this righteous servant, Jesus, interceding for you, you will have to spend eternity in hell suffering for your sins. Just a couple chapters later in this book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, he writes this, "'Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good.' and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. Jesus alone can satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. And Jesus alone can be the one to satisfy you. Jesus offers himself to you freely. So turn from your sins and trust in him alone to be your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we have the ultimate proof of the resurrection in our hands this morning. The word of God, 700 years before Jesus even came, testified that he would die for our sins and that he would rise from the dead. Lord, our faith is not an irrational faith. It is is a logical, rational faith Faith, because it is founded upon your word. Lord, uh, the explanations and theories of men are faulty. We cannot cannot put our whole faith in their explanations, but we can rest our whole faith on your word because you are a God who cannot lie. We thank you that our faith in a resurrected Christ has a rock-solid foundation. Help us to stand firmly upon that foundation with both our feet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.